Today's message, if you'll open your outlines, or open your bulletins, there's an outline in there, is called Turning Tragedy into Triumph. And if you want to open your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can turn to 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV today. Yours may have a little different version, but that's okay. We're going to get the same principles out of this text this morning. Turning tragedy into triumphs. We've all been there. We've all messed up. We've all had tragedies in our life, hurts and habits and hang-ups and things that we didn't want to go a particular way, but they did. And then we've seen turnarounds in our life. It's an amazing thing that God can do. But you know, when you're in the downtime, when you're in the failure, when you're in the hurting phase, when you maybe had a big dream for God and you had a broken desire, we all know what that's like. It's a bummer, isn't it? It doesn't feel good. You don't like it. Maybe you had this great dream to serve God or your family or your fellow man. I was listening to the radio on the way in, and a guy was talking to a to a preacher on the radio and was saying, man, I, I had a business and it was successful. We bought a big house, very expensive, but everything was booming back then and things are booming right now, and now we're filing for bankruptcy. Ooh. Tragedy. And then I got here and I didn't hear the rest of the story, but I hope it turned out for a triumph. But some of you may be going through financial problems this morning, health issues, marital issues, all kinds of tragedies going on in the lives of God's people, men and women throughout the world. And especially in ministry. Have you ever wanted to be involved in ministry and be used by God in a great way, but it came up short and so did you? kind of fell flat the tendency on our part is to do what just kind of get down and discouraged and and lose heart that's why mark twain said if a cat sits on a hot stove it'll never do that again but it'll never sit on a cold stove either why it's been burned and maybe you tried ministry you tried to serve and you wanted to help and And maybe it fell flat and you said, well, God, I'm never going to do that again. Don't give up. Nobody bats a thousand. That's not the time to let that tragedy win. That's that time to to reevaluate and look at what God's... maybe, Maybe I didn't do it quite right. And hang in there for the Lord. Don't lose heart. You know, every Olympian that has ever stood on that um, platform with a gold medal around their neck with that big smile on their face, will tell you how great that felt. But what they'll also be quick to tell you is all the failures that came before that victory. So don't give up when tragedy hits. The injury, the hurt, the setback. That's not the time for that. Achieving the goals are great feelings, but everybody goes through failures on the way. Let's look up here on the screen real quickly. Let's look at three facts about failures. Number one, we all fail. There's not a person in this room, including me, that hasn't failed, had setbacks, problems, or discouragements. Can I see the hands of anyone that has failed at least one time in here? Oh, guys, see your hands. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, you have failed right now? Just go ahead and do that. Tell them, you have failed. All right, some of you are enjoying this way too much. (laughs) Number two, let's move on. The more we attempt, 
the greater our potential for failure. That's the second fact about failure. The more we attempt, the greater our potential for failure. The man who's never made a mistake never made anything. I'll tell you that right out of the gate. That's why Charles Kettering said, almost nothing comes out right the first time. You found that to be true? Sure we have. And then he also wanted to say repeated failures are a sign, a signpost toward success. Because with every failure, what do you learn? You learn, well, that didn't work. <laughs> but let me try it this way and another way. And another. The difference between a big shot and a little shot is the big shot never stops shooting. You just got to hang in there and push through sometimes. Thomas J. Watson of IBM fame said, the way to succeed is to double your failure rate. Isn't that an interesting comment? He's not glorifying failure. He's just saying the more you attempt, the more the odds are and the chances are that there's going to be some failures along the way. You know, those with the most home runs also have the most strikeouts. And if my Google search is correct, Nolan Ryan, remember this great pitcher Nolan Ryan, still holds the record in the major leagues for most strikeouts But you know what he also holds the record for? The most walks. Isn't that interesting? There's a correlation there. But it doesn't mean he gives up. He always keeps going. Crosspoint, have you ever tried something for God that just kind of went, not so good? And you got down, you got discouraged, you said, never going to do that again. Or maybe you got criticized by a member of the church and just took all the wind out of your sails. And you said, oh, I tried to do something for God. See, God, I got involved. I did this. I did that. And it failed. Don't let that set you back. You just hang in there. You keep on plugging away. And don't listen to the discouragement. I, I, I think every single one of you ought to have one good failure a week. I, I really do. Because you know what that tells me? You're trying new stuff. Now, don't let it be the same failure every week, all right? That would would not be a good thing. But if you attempt a few things and and you're just going, you know what, I'm just checking this out, da-da-da, you know, um, just call it a pilot program. Pilot programs are great. Look at ministry sometimes that way and make the adjustments along the way. And ask God, pray. Some of you are not getting prayed up. You're just trying stuff. And that's why number three says all failures can be placed into one of two categories. Look up here on the screen. Those who thought and never did, and those who did and never thought. Doesn't that make sense? a A lot of our failures and frustrations come from this. You know, we thought about it, but we never did it. Maybe you did the homework and the investigation that's absolutely necessary to start a great ministry for God, and you just kept thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, but you never got around to doing it. That person's motto is, ready, aim, 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 aim. You never shoot. But then the other extreme is those who did and never thought. You know, they just get excited. Man, I feel led of God. I need to start this ministry. I'm going to get plugged in. And, but they never think it through. They never plan. They never, you know, and, and of course it's going to be a failure. You need to put those two things together. You can't be a ready fire aim kind of person. And you can't be a ready aim, aim, aim kind of person. Blend it. Get ready, aim, fire. 
is the direction God would have you to go. You know, failure can be a great teacher. I know a number of people that have great second marriages. First one, not so well. But they have grown, they've matured, and, and, and they're being used of God greatly to this day. Now, here, let's get to our text this morning. The 2 Kings chapter 6, 1-7. through 7. This is the story of Elisha, the understudy of the great prophet Elijah. Um, you, you remember the two, Elijah was the one that God took up in the chariot of fire, and Elisha says, I want a double portion of his spirit, and the mantle fell on his shoulders, and he got it. Well, what Elisha did, he takes over from Elijah, and he starts a little preaching school for the prophets, all right? So he's got a little preaching school going on, but he's outgrown the preaching school. They need a bigger place, a bigger facility. You got the background? And so he says, so they came to Elijah. Well, let's read the text. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. We're growing by leaps and bounds. Wouldn't you love to have a problem like that, church? Let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a a place there for us to live. And he said, go. All right, man, have at it. Then one of them said, oh, it just wouldn't be the same without you, Elisha. Come on, come with us. Come on, we need you. Man, you're the man. Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied. Maybe he's just waiting for him to be asked, right? And then he went with them, and they went to the Jordan and began to cut down what? Trees. Next verse. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe had fell into the water. Oh, my Lord. He's not talking about God. That's a little L. Who's he talking to? Elisha. Elisha, help! Help! He cried out. It was borrowed. It was borrowed. What was borrowed? The axe head. He's got this great idea for ministry. I I know how to chop down trees. I've got some. God has given me some giftedness and building skills. I know how to frame a, a house. I can frame living quarters. I can frame a school building. I I can do it. But I don't have an axe. And so he borrowed an axe. And now he's chopping away. Gives it a good whack. And that axe head flies off the handle. And where does it go? Kaplunk into the Jordan River. Uh-oh. It was borrowed. You ever borrowed something and messed it up? You ever borrowed something and broke it? When I was... Um, in Portales, New Mexico, years ago. It was my internship. Jane and I uh, moved into a house of some church members who had just built a new house on the edge of town uh, on 3rd and Kilgore. We were closer to like 2nd Street. That means nothing to you, does it? Well, if you've ever been to Portales, New Mexico, we had two red lights or two street lights, number of stop signs, but only two street lights in the whole town, I kid you not. Well, um, they said $125 a month. That was a fortune to us. We said, we'll rent it. We'll take it. It was a deal. Buck and Eva Pardon. They were a great couple. We learned to love them, and they loved us. And we were on time with our rent, and they loved us more. And Eva could cook, man, best chicken fried steak and fried okra. And she grew her own garden. And, oh, so they kept us canned goods. And, oh, it's just, I'm getting off target here. Good memories, though, right, Jane? But when we moved into that house... 
they obviously was putting all their time and energy moving into their brand new home on the edge of town, and their lawn went totally neglected. And the grass was up, yay high, and and I didn't have a lawnmower, and there's just no way a push mower and to get through that thing. I, I didn't have anything. And so I started asking around in the church, does anyone have a lawnmower I can borrow? Are you seeing the picture where I'm going with this? And Curtis Brashear says, I do. It was a nearly new Toro. It wasn't one of these cheap jobs that you get from, you know, Sears. I don't know. What, what, who's going out of business? Somebody. One of those things. It was, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. This is going to go all over the internet. And Bruce is down on Sears. <laughs> They go out of business because of me. I'm going to feel really bad now. But anyway, it was a really good lawnmower, a Toro. And man, I'm just, mo- oh, no, hold on. Before I did anything, I picked up all the junk. You know how you, before you mow, you know, because they had kids and the kids had, you know, some toys and some stuff. So I picked everything up that I could see and I start mowing. I make a pass. I get the front yards all done. And I'm in the backyard now and boom, pass, pass, pass. All of a sudden, I hear a kaboom. And a railroad spike about that long, that blade had picked it up, shot it through the casing, the outer case, the, you know, the aluminum part of the lawnmower, seized it up, and that thing went about 30 feet. And I'm going, oh my Lord, oh my, there's no Elisha to cry to, right? Just me. And I'm going, what do I do? So I take it to the lawnmower shop. The lawnmower guy goes, I go, I, I'm thinking I ruined the engine. He says, it's a good thing, it's a good one, because all you did was shear the, the pin. That, lawn, that particular brand of lawnmower was designed, if you hit something hard, the pin would shear. You could replace it rather easily, maybe 20 bucks, and you can keep on going. If it was a cheap one, it would have ruined everything. And I'm thinking, oh, thank you, Lord, but I still have this big old hole in it. So I fire it back up, and as I'm mowing, grass is coming into the back, but it's also shooting out the front. I'm going, what am I going to, I can't take it back like this. Never borrow anything, folks. I learned a very strong lesson. And so, <coughs> the next day, I got cleaned up, and I went into the, uh, the, the little bank there in Portales, and Dick Hood happened to be the vice president of that bank, and he was a member, he was a deacon at our church. And I told Dick what had happened. I said, Dick, my... I got medical bills because, you know, we didn't have insurance on my wife when she had surgery. We got a house payment. We got a car payment. And I just broke this, and I need to borrow $350. That's what that lawnmower cost way back in 1970, none of your business, a long time ago. And uh, I said, I promise I will pay whatever you say every month. We'll, we, we won't eat. We won't have kids. We won't do anything just to get this thing paid off. And he gave me a loan, and I went and bought a brand new one, and I returned it to Curtis Brashears. He goes, boy, you cleaned this thing up nice. And I told him what had happened. And he said, oh, you really didn't have to do that. And he was thinking, yes, you did. I don't want something broken. But he said all the right things. I said all the right things. I've learned a very valuable lesson. Do not borrow. Oh, no man, nothing the Bible says except to love them, all right? And I used that thing for probably another 15 years, and every time I mowed, grass was coming out saying, do not borrow, do not borrow, do not. Oh my Lord, it's borrowed! 
When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and he threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. And took it. We got some lessons to learn here. Quickly, five principles. Five principles of turning tragedy into triumph. Number one, admit you got a problem. No sense sticking your head in the sand. If you got a problem, admit you got a problem. Verse 5, as one of them was cutting down a tree, the axe had head, oh my Lord, he cried, it's borrowed. Let me give you a good definition of frustration. Frustration is not having anyone to blame but yourself. Right? I mean, I should have double-checked. I should have checked. Make sure there's nothing hidden in this grass. I just went through it quickly. I think I got it all. No. I had no one to blame but myself for the situation I found myself in. Number two, go back to the place where the problem started. Verse 6, the man of God asked, where did it fall? That's a good question. Where did the problem begin? Uh, That patch of grass right there, big old railroad spike. That's where it happened. And guess what I did when I fired that lawnmower back up? I searched every square inch of ground. you got to go with the problem. Now you can correct it, right? I don't want it happening again. It was a failure, but I learned from my failure. We need to take a close look at where the problem began. And sometimes in our lives, that is a very painful process. Whatever hurt, have a hang-up you got, it may be because you haven't went back and dealt with where that problem started. With where that problem began. Let me give you two places sometimes problems begin. Number one, wrong priorities. And number two... Wrong attitudes. <clears throat> Wrong priorities. We can get our priorities totally and completely out of whack. Uh, do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? Mary had the right priorities. Martha priorities more like external. Mary's were internal. And whenever Jesus went to Nicodemus's house, Nicodemus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha would always go and sit at Jesus' feet and was fed spiritually and worshiped Jesus and just had a great thing going on. Martha, she's thinking, no, Jesus is coming and, you know, we need to have, you know, the best roasted lamb chops that he's ever had. And he's, she's thinking food and Mary's thinking spiritual food. And finally, Martha, I just kind of picture peeking her head out the, the kitchen. When's Mary going to get in here and help me? And finally, she says, Jesus, would you make Mary get in here and quit having all the fun and get some help going on because we need to get this food ready for you guys. And she's, oh, Martha, shut off the stove and get in here, man. This, come join us. She's done the, the, the good thing. And, and besides, you're worrying about food. I mean, you don't have to go to all that. Tr- A couple of bologna sandwiches would have been fine, right? Peanut butter and jelly's okay. You don't... You're focusing on the wrong thing. We often focus on the externals when God would have us focus on the internals because if you don't, you will become spiritually empty as you're doing ministry very, very quick if you are not filled up spiritually. You've got to say, fill me, Lord, before you say, send me, Lord. Does that make sense? And some of you are trying to be sent without being filled. And I can't fill you. Only God can. See, a lot of people look to the preacher or maybe their husband or maybe to their wife or maybe to an authority figure 
to meet needs that only God can meet in your life. I can't meet all your needs. But God can. That's where we need to look. And then what happens if you don't do that? You start doing ministry and then you say, well, I'm doing more than them and they're not doing enough and I'm, they're not pulling their weight. And, and you get wrong attitudes. Hebrews 12.15 says, see to it that no bitter root grows. Well, where's he talking about it growing? In you, in your heart. The Bible says, make sure that no bitter root grows. There's jealousies and envies in the church and, and you know, uh, I'm working harder, or their gift's not as good as my gift, and whoa, 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 whoa. Have you ever been going at it with somebody? You're back and forth, back and forth, and all of a sudden you say something that's very inappropriate, and a bitter root comes out. Has that ever happened to you? Or am I the only one? You know what you need at that point? You need some spiritual roundup, because roundup kills the root. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. We live in an apartment. Well, I live at a house where there's grass, and in our grass sometimes weeds grow. And I've used the cheap stuff. You spray cheap stuff on a dandelion, the, the leaves may wither. But in a few weeks, new leaves grow. You spray Roundup on that, it's dead, man. That Roundup goes all the way down and kills the root. I need spiritual Roundup in my life. How about you? kill that bitter root you wonder how did that come out i didn't mean to say that yes you did because it was in there or you wouldn't have said it we need to deal with those spiritual roots in our life that just are festering and messing up our ministries and messing up our lives and turning our lives over to tragedy rather than to triumph Wrong attitudes that live deep down inside. Then number three, apply the cross. Admit you have a problem. Go back to where the place the problem started. Number three, apply the cross of Christ. No one can make it in life without the cross of Christ. Amen? You're just not going to make it. Look how the verse puts it. Verse 6, Elisha asks. Remember, he says, oh, my Lord, I've lost it. Where did it fall? Well, it fell right there. He then cut off a stick. And threw it where? There where the problem was. What's a stick made out of? Wood. Wood often in the Old Testament is symbolic of the wood in the New Testament called what? The old rugged cross. And God's trying to get them way back here. To start looking for the wood. Start looking for Christ. Start looking for salvation in that wood. He cut off a stick. And I don't know for sure. I, I, I want to see. This is one of those instant replays when I get to heaven. I want the DVD on this and I want to see it. And did he cut a stick in the form of an axe handle? I thought about that this past week. I don't know. But wouldn't that be cool? See, the axe head may have been just fine, but the axe handle may have not been so good. And so he fashions a stick of wood, throws it in where? There, where the axe head is, where the problem is, and that axe handle swims down, attaches itself to that iron, and it floats to the top. 
And there it is. Here I am. am. Here's your triumph. Here's your tragedy that's just been turned from a tragedy into a triumph. Pick it up. Enjoy it. That's a neat picture. That is a miracle, wouldn't you say? Axe heads don't float on their own. This is God getting involved in your life and helping with this man's tragedy through the wood, which is symbolic of the cross of Jesus Christ. In, in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, 23, uh, don't take the time to look it up right now, but you remember the story. The children of Israel have been led out of Egypt, and Pharaoh pursues them to the Red Sea, opens the Red Sea. They cross on dry land. The, the army follows them, and the water swallows them up. They get to the other side, and Miriam and the children of Israel throw a big party, and they dance before the Lord, and everybody's happy. An apparent tragedy turned into a triumph, and they say, man, let's get going to the promised land. And there they go. Three days into their journey, the smiles on their faces turn into frowns. Why? Do you remember the story? They ran out of what? Water. And they said, Moses! Here comes the whining. We want water. Have you brought us out in the wilderness to die? We want a drink. We want a drink. And, and Moses turns to the Lord and says, Lord, what do I do with these people? They're, they're all thirsty. And guess where they just happened to stop? At a beautiful lake called Merah. And you go, ooh, victory, great. But when they went to drink the water, you know what the word Merah means? Bitter. Guess what that water tasted like? You ever drink out of an old garden hose and it tastes like rotten eggs? Okay, that's, that, that's, that's what's going on here. And they go, great. What kind of leader is Moses? What kind of God is our God? How quickly we forget the Red Sea. How quickly we forget the ten plagues. How quickly we forget the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had all these blessings and they're still what? murmuring and complaining, looking at their tragedy rather than their triumph that is right there before them. But do you remember what God told Moses to do? He says, go get some wood and throw it into the lake. And when he did, there's that wood picture again. Are you getting this? The cross. That bitter water became as sweet and as pure and as cool and as clean and as refreshing as any mountain stream. And God took a tragedy and He turned it into a triumph. He wants to do that in your life. But where's your attitude? We want a drink. What kind of a God do I have? Where is He when I need Him? Do you see the attitude there that God is trying to get us to, to get around and, 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 and not have that negativism? Wrong priorities, wrong attitudes. It's all symbolism of the cross when you look at the wood. And so, let the cross be applied to your greatest tragedy that you're going through in life today, whether it's financial, spiritual, emotional, relational health-wise, whatever it happens to be. See, that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. I don't know what non-Christian people do when tragedy hits their lives. I would not want to be a, a person that went through a huge hurricane in Texas or Florida or Puerto Rico and not be a believer. What do you do? 
You run to government. You run to somebody else to help you. I want to run to God. I want God opening my doors. Government doesn't always do such a great job. Fellow government workers excluded in our audience this morning. And so what happens with people that don't turn to God, they end up having worry and fear and pride. They turn to something, but they don't turn to God. But the cross provides forgiveness and salvation and uninterrupted fellowship. Whether you're having a good day or a bad day, your fellowship with God does not break. Look at 1 John 1 verse 7. Quickly, quickly, quickly. But if we walk in the light, that's with the Lord as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. That's not, I used to read that, oh, we're having fellowship one with another. That's the church. No, he's talking about my relationship with God. I have fellowship with Him. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sins. In other words, all my tragedies in life are purified by who? Jesus. And the Greek and the English both have it in the... Present continuous tense. You see, purifies. It doesn't just clean you one time the day you got saved and then kind of start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. It's uninterrupted fellowship. I like that. My tragedies don't have to be tragedies if I turn them into triumphs by looking to the cross. God is eager to forgive. God wants to love and forgive you. You know what I've discovered about God as I move along the way in my journey? that God is not nearly as hard to get along with as I was once taught to believe. He's actually on my side. I grew up in somewhat of a legalistic church. Loving legalist, yes, but legalistic just the same. And I had this picture of an all-seeing eye watching me, waiting for me to mess up. That's not the God that my Bible talks about. He is not a difficult God to, to get along with. He loves us. He loves us. Number five, or number four, expect a miracle. Verse six, we're still verse six here. When Elijah threw the wood into the river, the iron began to float. Now that's incredible. You've got to admit, that is a miracle. You say, but Bruce, that is impossible. Yeah, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are what? Possible. Miracles don't change good people's lives, but bad people's lives. Great men of God had two things in common. Number one, they were greatly used of God. I want you to see that. They were greatly used of God. I'm going to read some names to you. These are standard household names if you were brought up in the church and maybe not even brought up in the church. Some of these names, were, well, you'll find them on Jeopardy questions if you watch Jeopardy. Abraham was called the friend of God. Jacob, prince of God. Moses spoke face to face. With God. David was called a man after God's own heart. Jesus loved Peter so much that he gave him the keys to the kingdom, and Paul was called God's chosen vessel, his chosen instrument. But the second thing I know about these great men is they failed God desperately. Every single name that I mentioned to you failed God desperately. Abraham was a liar, Jacob was deceitful, Moses was a murderer, David a murderer and an adulterer, Peter denied the Lord. At a very critical time in Jesus' life when he really needed some support and Paul was a murderer. All these men had great problems. They had great tragedies in their life. But it wasn't their problem that they focused on. It was their response to the problem. They all 
sought the Lord. They all, you know that old song we used to sing, where could I go but to the Lord? You know, I may be a mess, but I'm still God's mess, and I'm smart enough and know enough to go to the Lord with my mess. These guys did too. They all had problems. A few weeks back, well, maybe it was a month or so ago, we talked about King Saul and King David. And we said, what was the difference between their sins? You remember that? And, and really it boils down to this. It wasn't their sin. I, you can make a case that David's sin was much worse than King Saul's. But it wasn't the sin, it was the response to it. Saul rationalized his sin. He justified his sin. He blamed others for his sin. Where David just came out with a broken and contrite heart and repented of his sins. And he said, God, you're right. I am the man. I blew it. Read Psalm 51. Wash me with hyssop. Restore in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hold on to me, God, when I'm messing up. Ooh, don't you love that spirit about David? I do too. Now, some of you are like David, and that's what you do. Some of you are like Saul, and you blame. Some of you right now are blaming your husbands. You're blaming your wives. You're blaming your circumstances. You're blaming God. You're blaming your parents. You're blaming your background. You won't find triumph there. You just won't. One more point, we're done. We just might get out early today. Wouldn't that be a miracle? Number five, reach out and pick up the power. Verse seven. This must have been an amazement, right? Where to go in? Went in there, takes a stick, throws it down in there, it comes up, and there it is, floating on the water. And you're this guy, and what are you doing? Wow! You're just gawking at the miracle. Folks, when God sends a miracle your way, it's not to be gawked at. It's to be picked up and put into use. Or God's not going to give you a miracle. If you're not going to pick it up and put it to use, why would God give you a miracle? And so he says... Take it up for yourself. What's Elisha thinking? I'm not going in there and getting it. It's not my problem. God did the miracle through the wood. Now it's your job to pick it up and your problem solved. Salvation's a free gift, but even a gift has to be what? Received. You've got to take it. Doesn't that make sense? Pick it up for yourself. Miracles are never for our amazement. They are for use. Even a tragedy, even a circumstance of life that you think is not all that good. God never wastes a hurt. We say that all the time around here. Pick it up, turn the tragedy into a triumph. Never conclude, because you are going through a hard time, that uh, God is not with you. That is a wrong conclusion, folks, that we often make. Last night... um, I went to dinner with some friends, and um, 
Well, Keith and Jan were there, and, and Keith was buying, and, and when Keith buys dinner, I'm there, right? And <laughs> it, it was kind of an event type of a thing. And at this event, there was a comedian, um, Michael Jr. Have you ever heard of this guy? I'd never heard of him before. I must not watch a, a lot of TV, but this guy was great. He was funny, and, uh, and what's kind of interesting is he started off by talking about, I guess you could call it a tragedy in his life that turned into a triumph. He had a learning disability from the time he was young. Uh, he went to school, but he, he didn't know how to read. You can imagine going through first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, on up through grade school, and by and by, they tried everything. You know, phonetically, it just didn't work. All the stuff, but nothing worked. But he taught himself to read by looking at a word in seven different ways. Now, he had this learning disability, and he could have just said, well, poor me, I got this disability. God didn't cause the disability, did he? No. But God used that disability to turn a tragedy into a triumph. And so what he would do, he said, was, he didn't go through all seven, but I remember two or three. He said, I would look at the word and look at the size of the word. I would look at the shape of the word. I would look at the color of the word. He, he might look at that exit sign over there and we'd go, exit. He, he'd say, zit, or izit. He just didn't know how to pronounce it. But if he heard other people pronounce it, well, that would stick in his mind. So that would be one way. Another way was the font, the size, whatever. But he developed seven ways of looking at words and finally taught himself to read. But then he started applying those seven things to life. And he became a comedian. He says, you know, as I look through life, these seven principles that I have learned really are the principles of life. And he could size you up and he can come up with something funny instantly by applying this method. And then he had an epiphany one day. He said, you know, I'm making people laugh and, and you know, uh, and I'm getting a whole lot of fulfillment and joy out of this. But, you know, this should not just be for me. He learned to be a giver. And give joy to people. He says, I don't just want people to laugh. I, I want to give them an opportunity to laugh. And I had to think about that for a moment. God didn't just give you a ministry to serve. God gave you a ministry to give op- an opportunity of people to receive. Not just that you get something out of it, but you both get something out of it. And that just kind of changed his thinking. He says, here's how the way it works for us comedians, or at least for me as a comedian today. From a comedian's perspective, he said something like this. There is what we call the setup. What is the setup? That's when you take people in a direction that you want them to go. And so they start following you down this direction. And then there's what they call the punchline. The punchline is when you change the direction in a way they weren't expecting. You see that? The setup. Come along with me. Come along. And you think this is going to be the answer, and then he kind of flips it on you. Uh, He gave an example last night. Um, He wasn't a big comedian at the time, but he knew a friend that was a comedian that was playing at this place that was uh, really big in Florida, and you really had to be somebody to play there. To give you an idea of the kind of audience that was in the green room with them, 
Uh, Jay Leno, does that make any, uh, ring any bells? Okay, those are the kinds of guys he's in the green room with. And Jay Leno's going, you know, I'm kind of working on, you know, my monologue for tonight. And, uh, you, know, it's, you know, we like to take things that are going on relevant in the news. And way back then, uh, a number of years ago in the NFL, a player got injured. Um, a referee threw a flag, and the flag hit a player in the eye, and he was blinded for life. And he was suing the NFL for like $400 million. And Jay Lano's going, hey guys, give me some ideas here. What, no, let's play with this. This, this is, what can I say with that? And so they all went around the room, and they came up with some good stuff. And finally, Jay Leno turns to Michael, and he said, hey, you, uh, what would you say? And Michael goes, well, let me see if I got this straight. So ref throws a flag, hits an NFL player in the eye. He's now blinded in one eye, and he's suing the NFL league for $400 million. Hmm. He won't see half of that. And Jay Leno goes, man, that is great. Two weeks later, had him on the Jay Leno show, and pff, the rest is history. And, 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 and they go, how'd you come up with that on the spot? He says, what, what you think was hard for me really wasn't hard for me because I'd been practicing those seven principles of my life since the time I was a small child learning to read. He was ready for it. He took that tragedy and turned it into what? A triumph. <laughs> On the way home, Jane goes, you remember his first joke? And I go, no, I really don't. I don't even know if I should tell this. <laughs> All right, he's got like five kids, and they went to Mexico, okay, for a vacation. And, and, and for three days, um, well, he said it, they, they kept calling him, he's a black man, did I mention that? But they kept calling him a Negro, and finally he realized after the third day, they were saying, amigo. <laughs> Take you in one direction and then flip you around to another, all right? Turn a tragedy into a triumph. But he multiplied his ministry by being both a giver and a receiver. He gave the audience what they wanted and, he, and gave them what they needed, and he received at the same time. That's the way ministry works, folks. When you've got the right heart and the right attitude, there's revelation, fulfillment, and there's joy. And you both enjoy the punchline because you both receive by giving. Quickly, on the screen, the question is not, have I failed? The question is, will I choose to continue failing? In 1902, the Atlantic Monthly Poetry Editor returned a batch of poems to a 28-year-old poet with this note on it. Our magazine has no room for your poetry. The poet's name was Robert Frost. In 1905, at the University of Bern, a Ph.D. applicant flunked his dissertation. And, and this is what they said about him. Your dissertation is not relevant. Do you know what the student's name was? Albert Einstein, Theory of Relativity. Anybody heard of that? In 1894, an English teacher in Harrow, England, wrote on a 16-year-old grade card, You are a conspicuous lack of success. That was Winston Churchill they said that about. 1954, if you like baseball, some of you know these stats. As like John back there. Two rookies started their baseball careers. One named Jim Greengrass. He went four for four on his opening day of baseball and his opening day as a rookie in his 
career started off great. Four for four. And all of them were doubles, by the way. Can you imagine your rookie year up there, first at bat, bang, double. Second time, bang, double. Third time, bang, double. Fourth time, bang, double. And the newspapers all over the place said about Gene Greengrass, what a great guy, guy he was and what a great batter. And, oh, man, what a career he has ahead of him. There was another rookie that started that day, went 5-0. and oh, Not one hit. But, here's the big but. When he retired, everybody said about Hank Aaron, he was the greatest home run hitter that ever played the game of baseball. See, folks, it's not how well you start. It's how well you end. It's not the hurts, habits, and hang-ups and tragedies in your life and shortcomings and your failures. How are you going to end is really the main point. You know, one of my daily prayers is, God, help me to end well. I want to end well. Don't you? Billy Graham was engaged to a girl named Emily. Did you know that? Until she broke it off. <laughs> Can you imagine how crushed he was? He, he writes about this. He was crushed. He was feeling horrible about the rejection. But when he got through it, God had prepared, waiting in the wings, this beautiful young girl named Ruth Bell Graham. And they got married, and she assisted him and came alongside of him in ministry for many, many years until she went to be with the Lord. Jim Elliott, does that name ring a bell? Great missionary. He was killed by the savage spears of the Inca Indians. His wife, Elizabeth, went back into those same jungles with her children and shared Jesus Christ with the same men that killed her husband. And they all became believers. Isn't that amazing? Hmm. The tragedies in life are not the tragedies. The tragedy is not the tragedy, but how we respond to it. Two people undergoing the same difficulty. One um, applies the wood. One applies the cross and turns a tragedy into a triumph. Turns a test into a testimony. But the other puts his head down and says, life is sour, life is bitter, and walks away lonely and sad and empty. The choice is yours. If I could, I would reach into the past tragedies of every single one of you in our audience this morning. And I would pick up for you that which you need. But I can't do that. My Bible says... You have to pick it up. You've got to reach down and pick up the wood and apply it to your life. Now, here's what I want to do. We're going to close with this. Would everyone just bow with me right now? And praise team, I want you to come up. Everyone else, bow your heads. Praise team, I want to use you here for a moment. Everyone, bow your head. Close your eyes. And just you and God for a moment, all right? Just kind of... Screen everybody else out of your mind. Everything else that you were thinking about, you got to do this week. Get it out of there and create sort of like a little cocoon between you and God for a moment. And I want to give you an opportunity to make the right choice. And I'm gonna, I've asked the, the praise team to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just the first verse t- through twice, two times. And... And I don't want us all to start singing it. I don't want anyone to sing it until the second time. 
But, but if you're having a problem this morning, if there's a tragedy going in your life, as they sing it for us the first time through, if you would just stand, if God's telling you to stand, then stand up. And by standing, what you're doing is you're admitting to God that you have a problem. But you're also acknowledging that the cross is being applied to that problem in your life. And then we'll sing it all through together in just a moment. As the Spirit of God speaks to you, just stand up as they sing. Let's pray together. For those who earlier admitted that they have a problem, let them know, Father, that you have the solution. And may they accept the healing and forgiveness and let them feel your love and forgiveness this day and heal every dark area of their life. We pray in Jesus' name. Now dismiss us in your care. In your Son's name, amen.